Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. Facing a number of major crises, President-elect Joe Biden stepping up his transition plans, launching a major coronavirus task force, and continuing to build his new administration staff. Meanwhile, President Trump is still refusing to concede, citing no evidence the attorney general authorizing more election investigations as a top prosecutor quits in protest. And the coronavirus crisis growing worse across the country, the U.S. now reporting more than 10 million cases. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with this. Offering no evidence, President Trump is still defiant, claiming the election was stolen. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden is already getting to work, announcing his plans to tackle the pandemic. Rafael Rodriguez has more details. With the U.S. passing 10 million coronavirus cases, President-elect Joe Biden is welcoming Pfizer's vaccine breakthrough, but warning there's still work to be done. The challenge before us right now is still immense and growing. We're still facing a very dark winter. Mask wearing has been politicized by the president. Now Biden is trying to reset that conversation. I want to be very clear. The goal of mask wearing is not to make your life less comfortable. It's to give something back to all of us, a normal life. Monday, he was briefed by his new coronavirus task force. Biden planning to ramp up testing and contact tracing, get more PPE for healthcare workers, and assess the racial disparities with the virus. Meanwhile, the White House had its own COVID briefing, led by Vice President Mike Pence for the first time in almost three weeks. President Trump, while active on Twitter, still largely out of sight since Biden's victory speech and still refusing to concede. This election is not over. Far from it. But President Trump and his team have presented no credible evidence of voter fraud. And overnight, the head of election crimes at the Department of Justice, Richard Pilger, resigning after Attorney General William Barr issued a new policy to U.S. attorneys telling them to, quote, pursue substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. Investigations of voter fraud would typically begin after states certify results weeks after an election. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Thank you, Rafa, for that report. And right now, the Trump-appointed administrator of the General Services Administration has not recognized the election results. Until that happens, the agency is holding back transition resources from President-elect Joe Biden, something his lawyers are not considering legal action over. And joining me now is Shara Torres Espelechi. She's a law professor at Stetson University College of Law. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. Now, lawsuits have already been dismissed in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, but the president's campaign has filed new ones in Pennsylvania and Arizona. How strong are they, and how are courts likely to act? So far, all of the claims from the Trump campaign have been nearly laughable in how bad they are. They're not uh, arguing something that a court can give them. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, one of the things they are asking for is to throw out the entire vote, uh, which is sort of absurd. 
uh, and I don't think any court is going to grant that type of relief. Now, Professor Attorney General William Barr told federal prosecutors to look into voting irregularities. What can we expect in the coming days or weeks? How long could this take? Well, I think most courts are going to try to wrap this up before the December 14th meeting of the Electoral College. But we've never had a president who's a sitting president who has not conceded a loss to an opponent. So we're all in new territory here. Now, talk to us about Biden's strategy. Are they likely to wait for these lawsuits to play out in the courts? Well, the Biden team has to prepare to take power. So they are doing things like the coronavirus task force. And I would imagine that he is thinking of who to put in his cabinet. And now, right now, in general, are there enough guardrails in our political system to stop Trump from contesting the election indefinitely? Well, he can't stay. Uh, that much is clear. So after December 14th, when the electors elect the next president, whoever has 270 electoral college votes will be the next president. And uh, if... <laughs> Trump is still uh, contesting, uh, it sort of won't matter because come January 20th, he is going to have to vacate the White House. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you, Shara Torres-Pelechi, law professor at Stetson University College of Law. Thanks again. Thank you. And now moving on, as of this morning, the results of two Georgia Senate races have still been called, and both Republican candidates in those races are calling for the Secretary of State to resign. Senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffner released a statement Monday saying, quote, the management of Georgia election has become an embarrassment for our state, and they want the Secretary of State to step down immediately. That man, who's also a Republican, is pushing back, defending the voting process in Georgia and says he will not be resigning. Meanwhile, as we wait for final vote counts in a number of states, let's go to Catherine Dunn-Tempes. She's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center and an expert on presidential transitions. Thank you so much for your time. We expected the Trump-Biden transition to be a bit bumpy, but what do you think about what we have seen so far? Well, we didn't expect it to be this bumpy. I think that it was all dependent on the margin of the electoral result. And I realize it is it is very close in several states as it was in 2016, but it's actually not as close as 2016 when Hillary Clinton conceded within the first 24 hours of the election. So it is unusual. Now the GSA is holding up some crucial resources available to the president-elect. Talk to us about what those are and how important they are for Biden's team moving on. Right. Well, it's important to know that the GSA, actually Congress passed laws after 9-11, after the 9-11 Commission's report that said president-elects need to be have more time and more resources to prepare. So actually, once Biden was nominated by the Democratic Party, GSA gave him a tranche of resources that, it, um, and the second batch of resources and money and access comes after the president 
president has been determined based on the election. What's important sources is officials to go to the various departments and agencies to interview the current administration to try to get a sense of the lay of the land, to try to understand what the big crises are, what the priorities are, and what Biden will need to pay attention to most after January 20th. Now, Without that access, they're unable to do that. And now the inauguration is roughly 70 days away. Talk to us about what needs to happen in that short amount of time for there to be a smooth transition of government. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are two very important things. The biggest by far is personnel. Presidents need to appoint roughly 4,000 presidential appointees across the government to fill positions. And so what the Biden administration or president-elect has been doing is vetting individuals for that. They can do that without the GSA, but they need vital access to the departments and agencies across the executive branch so that they can try to understand what the crises, what the problems, what the priorities should be after January 20th. And until the GSA grants them access, grants them funding, grants them additional office space, that's where the holdup is. I would say if it happens in the next week, that's okay. But if it waits that much longer, every day is lost. And that's important time that the Biden, incoming Biden administration needs to build and prepare for January 20th. Now, in your opinion, how well positioned is Joe Biden to navigate this rough time, especially having worked before with many top Republicans like the Senate Majority Leader? Right. I would say if there was ever a time for a crisis of this nature in the United States, the time is now in the sense that Vice President-elect Biden has been a vice president for eight years. He was in the Senate for 36 years. He understands government, and he has a cadre of people around him who have substantial government experience. And this is in stark contrast to the Trump administration that entered in 2017 that had the lowest amount of prior government experience going all the way back to the Reagan administration. So, um, like I said, if, if this is not good, um, but, if it, but occurring now with a president-elect that's so experienced and a team around him that's also so experienced, the damage can be mitigated to some extent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Catherine Duntempe, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, in other news out of Washington, after more than two hours of arguments on the fate of the Affordable Care Act at the Supreme Court, it now appears that two of the conservative justices are unwilling to strike down the law entirely. Chief Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It's a decision that could impact 10 millions of Americans who gained health care under the so-called Obamacare. Edwin PT has the latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Carolina. That's right. Today was the beginning of the process that could determine the future of the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare. I'm talking about the latest legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act today here before the Supreme Court during a pandemic and in the middle of a rapidly changing political environment. Now we know that the nine justices were participating in this remotely. They were not here in the Supreme Court, but many people were outside trying to send a loud and clear message about them supporting the Obamacare. But it is important to know that even though this is not the first time that this law has been challenged before the Supreme Court, this time it's different because there are three justices named by President Donald Trump. We're talking about Neil Gorsuch, 
Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. But of course, the attention remains on the case California versus Texas that in the Trump administration asking the court to find a key provision um, unconstitutional. We're talking about the individual mandate. And that, if that happens, that could affect over 20 million people in the United States. Of course, many of them with pre-existing conditions and also millions could lose the protection obtained under Medicare, uh, Medicaid, I have to say, that was expanded under the Obamacare. But precisely talking about Medicaid, we know that Justice Alito said that he suggests that the Republican-led state may have standing because the ACA forces them to take certain actions in their Medicaid programs. The response came from Justice Sonia Sotomayor saying that if the states are injured by the ACA's Medicaid provisions, they should bring a challenge to those specific provisions and not try to invalidate the entire law through a backdoor challenge to the individual mandate. Like I was saying before, many people were out here singing, dancing, and sending the message that healthcare should be a human right for everybody in the United States. We had the opportunity to talk to a mom that she's very concerned about her daughter's pre-existing condition. Take a listen. She was born at 26 weeks gestation, and her birth is a pre-existing condition. Without the ACA, she'll, be, she'll become uninsurable. And what chance does anybody have without insurance, without health care? Carolina, the nine justices only heard the arguments today. They are not expected to rule until next year during the summer. Reporting from the Supreme Court, back to you. Thank you for that report from D.C. Edwin Pitti. And now on Capitol Hill, the coronavirus stimulus package remains stuck, negotiations are stalled, and the prospects of one succeeding also remains in limbo in the wake of the election. According to sources, Republican leaders are against a proposal that would cost more than $1 trillion. Democratic leaders want twice that amount. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell recently said he's interested in passing another stimulus. On a related note, Congress is facing a December 11th deadline to keep the government funded. And the U.S. reporting new milestones surpassing 10 million cases of coronavirus, with more than 100,000 cases per day. All states now seeing infections increase as news of an effective vaccine had stocks rising and medical experts hopeful. Lorraine Casares has the latest. Thousands of people taking to the streets on Saturday celebrating the victory of President-elect Joe Biden while coronavirus cases soared to more than 126,000 in one day. The United States now surpassing 10 million cases since the start of the pandemic, one million of those reported in just the last 10 days. In the past week, roughly 74 Americans were diagnosed every minute. Right now, every state is seeing an increase in cases. And then now, as you see, we're well over 100,000, and that is really something that is unfortunate. Having said that, it is not too late to turn that around. At least 16 states across the country are seeing record hospitalizations, including Ohio, which saw its worst week since the pandemic began. Ohio medical officials warning that hospitals are becoming overwhelmed due to the recent uptick. That surge also felt in North Dakota, where the governor announced that asymptomatic COVID-positive healthcare workers are now allowed to work in COVID units of licensed healthcare facilities as hospitals face 
staffing shortages. We could be facing a situation in our state in the next two to three weeks where we would be severely constrained on hospital capacity. Some parts of the state are already, we're already seeing that. In El Paso, Texas, hospitals are so full, the state shipped in-med surge tents, and in recent days, county officials have added a tenth mobile morgue to keep up with the climbing death rate. You've got saturated hospitals. You've got a potential of 10 morgues in your community. The trajectory does not look good at all, and that to me is extremely scary. In Utah, overcrowding in intensive care units forcing Governor Gary Hubert to declare a new state of emergency. I am placing the entire state of Utah under a mask mandate until further notice. And in Indiana, where hospitalizations are also spiking, state officials calling for retired health care workers to help with staffing. Meanwhile, at the White House, another outbreak of coronavirus. President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and four others in Trump's orbit testing positive. Also housing and urban development secretary Ben Carson seen maskless at several of the president's events, confirming Monday he too has coronavirus. This as the world's welcome potentially good news. Pfizer announcing its vaccine is 90% effective. President Trump tweeting his excitement, saying such great news news. President-elect Joe Biden is also pleased, but cautious. This vaccine, even if approved, will not be widely available for many months yet to come. The challenge before us right now is still immense and growing. And Pfizer is also saying that once available, the vaccine, people will need two doses and it's not clear how long the antibodies and the immunization will last. It's also saying that once it's available, it will be free for everyone. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And now two workers at a Colorado jail are in the hospital after a massive COVID-19 outbreak hit the facility. The El Paso County Sheriff's Office reports 73 employees have tested positive for the virus. That includes the two who have been hospitalized. The Sheriff's Office has not released any details about the sick employees, including their current conditions. As far as the inmates in that facility, more than 900 of them have reportedly contracted the disease. That's out of the more than 1,200 inmates in custody. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And now, here in the U.S., when it comes to the election, some experts predict that Joe Biden could win Florida and Texas due to the growing number of Latino voters in those states. But a different picture has emerged. President Trump not only retained those states, but in some cases gained more Latino voters than four years ago. Joining us now to break down the Latino vote in the 2020 election is Sergio Garcia Rios, his Univision director of polling and data. Thank you so much for your time, Sergio. What is your take on the results amongst Latino voters? Were you surprised by the results? Thank you, Carolina. Um, 
I mean, in a way, what we see at the national level is that Latinos did vote for Biden, and the national polling for Latinos, those good quality, high quality polls, did predict uh, something similar. Uh, I was looking at a report for, uh, by UCLA uh, uh, Latino and Policy Analysis uh, Initiative, and they show in a precinct by precinct analysis that Biden might have done a little better than Clinton did in 2016, uh, even if by, you know, four to five points. But he, he seems to have done a little better. Uh, in some counties, we do see uh, support for Trump increasing. And as you were mentioning, uh, Texas and Florida were very close. We were expecting the Latino vote to make a difference there. But what we see in some of these counties is that uh, for some Latinos, the economy, the jobs, um, Issues of uh, reopening uh, the economy were key for them to actually ending up supporting Trump. I think I wasn't surprised. I think we shouldn't be surprised to see Latinos voting for Trump in a time as, like this. We definitely know that the economy is hitting hard, our, our, our community, the coronavirus is hitting hard, and how, you know, the two campaigns were able to separate issues uh, definitely paid off. In Florida, we saw this campaigning uh, in terms of socialism and heavy uh, uh, advertising, heavy ads and, and uh, TV presence uh, on the issue of socialism. So I'm not surprised that some Latinos ended up shifting. But at the end, the narrative, really, what we see is that Latinos ended up still voting for Biden. Right. Sergio, now, according to a Univision poll leading up to the election, Biden had a strong lead among Latinos in Florida. He did get most of the Latino vote in the states, but support for Trump increased this time around. What happened there? Yeah, again, I think um, what, what our poll showed was that there was, uh, we were expecting uh, from the poll Puerto Ricans to uh, counterbalance the Cuban-American vote. And we also saw some Cuban-Americans from um, newer generations, second, third, fourth generation Cuban-Americans, to shift towards Biden. Um, I think at the end, um, still, the, the, all the socialism uh, rhetoric and the fear that some of our communities still have about socialism ended up impacting. We had a focus group uh, leading up to the election, and some of the comments that we heard in this focus group precisely uh, uh, focus on this issue. They said, well, I, I don't agree with everything that Trump is doing and some of the things that he has done. He's not taking the coronavirus seriously, but I think Biden is a little bit too socialist. That, those were their words. And so I think that ended up having a big effect. And they campaign on that um, heavily. Now, the Associated Press called Arizona for Biden a Republican stronghold. What role do Latino voters in urban areas play? I think that was uh, that was a key role, uh, as you know, compared to Florida. I think that's what we're seeing that the Latino vote is key in different areas, even if for different candidates. So while Cuban Americans and some other Latinos were key to Trump in Florida, in Arizona we see the opposite, where there was um, a big uh, participation from Latinos, uh, historic turnout. And I'll say the work in Arizona is mostly coming from grassroots organizations, and we have seen a long history of discrimination and racist policies emerging from Arizona. So it's no surprising that all these organizations have come out strongly uh, in mobilizing the Latino vote, and we see the results now there. So at the end, either, either voting Republican in Florida or voting uh, for Democrats in, in Arizona, the Latino vote is being key in these elections. Thank you, Sergio Garcia Rios, Director of Polling and Data at Univision Noticias. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.